The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders Teach Season 3, our mini-series on medical education. I'm Dr. Ira Krzyzanowska. We thought we would be without our fearless leader today, Dr. Molly Hoyblein, but my heart was warmed. It swelled a little bit, not in the edema sort of way, but we got to see her today, and we are so excited about that. We also have a special guest host today, Dr. Francis Yu, who we're so excited to see, who will be introing our guests. On today's episode, we're going to discuss launching into a clinician educator career with Dr. Sue Farrell and Caroline Akori. Molly, can you remind the audience what we do on the show? Absolutely, Ira. It's fun to be you today. So uh, <laughs> we at the Curbsiders Teach are the uh, medicine podcast for all things medical education. We use expert interviews to bring you teaching pearls and practice changing knowledge to inspire the next generation of medical educators. We have a great conversation with our guests, Dr. Sue Farrell and Caroline Okori tonight. We discuss how to develop a career mission statement, strategies to get started in a career as a clinician educator, ways to advance to the next stage of your career, and more. A little bit about our guests, Dr. Sue Farrell, currently the Associate Dean for Assessment and Evaluation at Harvard Medical School. She has worked in medical education at HMS since 1998 and as the Director of Student Programs in Emergency Medicine as a course tutor and lecturer and as the Director of the HMS four-year OSCE program. She also co-leads the Interprofessional Educational Societal Theme, and on top of all of that, she also directs and co-directs the Harvard Macy program for postgraduate trainees who aspire to be clinician educators. She has vast international work, including work in New Zealand, Singapore, and Spain, as well as India. And she is actively engaged in certification efforts with the National Board of Medical Examiners and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Carolyn Okori is board certified in pediatric pulmonology, sleep medicine, and general pediatrics, and joined the Division of Pediatric Pulmonary Asthma and Sleep Medicine in 2018 at Stanford. She obtained her medical degree and master's in public health at the University of Arizona before going on to residency and chief residency in pediatrics at Oregon Health and Science University. Um, she completed her fellowship training in both pediatric pulmonary medicine and sleep medicine. She is passionate about medical education and serves as APD for the pediatric residency program at Stanford. Personally, I'm so thrilled to have both Drs. Farrell and Akori with us today as part of, of the Harvard Macy Educators community. And a special thanks to our listeners who have joined our Patreon. To those of you who love the show but haven't joined yet, please know that your donation helps support us and keep our podcast accessible and high quality. And a reminder that most episodes are available for free CME credit through VCU Health CE for all health professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. So without further, so without no, further, no, ado, further ado, let's get to it. Let's, let's get, get to, to it. it. Drs. Farrell and Okori, thank you so much for coming on the show. We are so happy to have you. Um, do you mind if we call you by your first names, uh, Caroline and Sue? Sure. Wonderful. Please. Thank you. Well, I was hoping we could start with a one-liner uh, to get to know you better in terms of our rapid-fire questions that we do at the beginning of these shows. Um, love to hear maybe from Caroline, you first, a one-liner to describe yourself and feel free to include something outside of medicine. 
Okay. Um, well, I'm a, a sleep enthusiast. I'm a sleep specialist, but I also personally love sleep. Um, I love cheesy movies, and I've been known to really enjoy a movie that has a nice slow clap in it. And Caroline, what is an example of a movie with a nice slow clap in it? Oh, my gosh. I mean, well, I like any Hallmark movie. Uh, <laughs> yes. So I think, yeah, that genre. Okay. And Sue, what about you? Uh, I am a mom. I'm an emergency physician and an educator at Harvard. I'm a beach bum and an amateur artist. Love it. You've got the artistic side, the outdoor time. That's that's wonderful. Um, in the interest of time, let's jump right into a case. Uh, Francis, do you want to kick us off? All right. Let's start with case one from Cashlack Memorial. So you're teaching at a course for resident physicians and clinical fellows who seek to enhance their skills and scholarship as future academic clinician educators. This may sound familiar. The course content is built around two major themes, skills in teaching and learning and scholarship in health professions, education. One session at the course is a panel discussion with clinician educators where you have the opportunity to share your career path as a clinician educator and advice for these trainees aspiring to start a career in medical education. Sue and Caroline, you may recognize this setup from the postgraduate Harvard Macy Institute's course for future academic clinician educators. If you are on this panel or creating this panel, what are you hoping to get across broadly? One might say, what are your goals and objectives for this type of presentation? Sue, why don't you get us started? I'll start because you're right, it is a very familiar uh, case example, Francis. And I will tell you that 10 years ago when we started this course, uh, the co-directors and I thought that uh, the participants would love hearing from senior uh, clinician, academic educators and leaders to inspire them. And what we found was that uh, their stories, although they were inspiring to us as mid-career educators, they were just they were just too developmentally afar from everyone else and so in redesigning that actual panel experience we asked uh, junior faculty both from the course and from other areas to come and talk about how they made those first decisions in leaving their formal training to launch into their academic career because this was going to be most easy for people to embrace and actually be able to relate to how do you make those choices? And so we were really fortunate that Caroline is one of those people. Caroline, do you want to talk a little bit about your experience being on this panel? Yeah, I mean, well, it's so funny because at first I was like, well, what, you know, when I first started the panel, I thought, well, what, I, what do I have to share? What do I have to tell people? I'm just starting. Um, but I think to Sue's point, um, I think it is helpful when you are just really early in your career to hear how to even get started, especially in this era of academic medicine. Um, so for me, I think my main goal um, was just to, to give an example of a, a certain path to get in. So because I think a lot of people wonder, how do you even get your foot in the door? You know, how do you even start to think about building your career? Um, because I think in a lot of um, our training you know, it's very linear, right? We know that we need to do this, then this, then this, then this. And then when you first become an attending, um, it kind of opens up. And so I think um, I just wanted to give at least an example among the other great panels that we had, uh, just example of a, a path um, and how to find um, a niche within your within your field. And Caroline, I'm sure you 
crush this panel. I can feel it already. But when you were doing that, said crushing, did you happen to mention like, yes, I'm going to be a clinician educator and I'm a big C, little E, or I'm a little C, big E, like doing a lot of sleep medicine, or I heard you talk about sleep specialists, but then maybe even more education. Or how did you think about what in the world those letters mean and putting them together in terms of capital lowercase? Such a great question. I think, and I would love to hear, you know, Sue's take on this too. So the way I think about um, you know, big C, little E, it's someone who it's, it's, it's many people who are, um, you know, focusing on clinical care and they have trainees, medical students who still work with them and, and rotate through in their clinic or on their wards. Um, and then when I think of the big E, I always think of, well, I'm actually trying to center my academic career or my scholarship work, um, or kind of my, um, promotion or advancement around educational activities. So, uh, I saw myself as someone who just really enjoyed, um, centering education. So I uh, had a chance also being even a chief resident when I was um, a pediatric resident. And I think that kind of gave me really a good taste of, of how much fun it would be. So I think I was thinking of it as the big E as meaning, okay, this is where I want to really um, hone in my time and find my my focus. Um, you know, I have a lot of colleagues who do a lot of work in the lab and do a lot of these great like clinical research projects. And I realize, like, well, that's amazing. But I think what gets me really excited is is finding innovative ways to teach and motivate um, new learners. So that's that's how I think of the the big C, um, uh, big E kind of uh, difference. And Sue, did you want to add anything to that? I think similar to Caroline, but. Um, in a in a different framing slightly when i think about being a clinician i think about the patients with whom i interact and the people that i care for and i work in an academic setting so i work with medical students and residents and and i'm involved in really interesting educational conversations with them that are clinically relevant but i feel as though contributing to educational um, policy or being a leader in education really has to be founded in the the fact that we're there to take care of patients. And so it feels inauthentic to be at a big E educator um, without knowing what it feels like to be at the bedside and take care of patients and hear what their needs are. Um, I also think uh, it's funny, uh, I never really thought about this as what I was becoming or wanted to become, it's almost a state of mind that you look around after years of working really hard and teaching and loving what you do and you say, oh, wow, maybe I do actually add value in terms of the conversations and the scholarship and the things that we're working on. And maybe someone else might think that that means it's a big C, big E, but I don't think that I ever thought that myself. Thank you. That's helpful framing. Um, yeah. And, and I kind of heard sort of being based in clinical work, but then innovating in education, moving towards leadership as some of the things to be an academic clinician educator. Are there some concrete and practical steps that you might share in terms of building your career? Um, and Caroline, if you'd like to start us off. Sure. Um, I think, you know, I think I like to where we, um, I work in a place where there's lots of trainees just, you know, intrinsically everywhere you go. So it's been really um, easy for me to engage with learners. But I think if you have someone who is starting a job, um, I think first finding a way, go to where the learners are. <laughs> I think um, so, you know, with your clinical work, so, you know, find them in on the wards or invite them to your clinic or whatever um, kind of makes sense for your clinical setting. So that would be one. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you're, if you don't have like a really 
great way in the beginning, maybe just, you know, volunteer to lecture, give talks, like just engage with the learners in some way um, that, to, to Sue's point, centers the patients and helps them be better clinicians and, and leaders themselves. Um, and then I think it's just, you know, engaging with people who are already in leadership for, for education. So talking to your residency uh, program directors, clerkship directors, um, fellowship, whatever is kind of um, available to you. And just, you know, um, I always tell my residents to have like informational meetings with people. So, hey, can I take 15 minutes of your time just to hear about why you do what you do, how you do what you do? Um, and then just ask if there's any opportunities where they can to get involved. And the last is just apply for opportunities, volunteer, apply, get involved. Um, you know, I think just see what you might um, find interesting. You want to develop your skills and also have people kind of see that this is something that you're interested in doing. And I feel like a lot of times it's, you know, as you do more, um, people then invite you to do more afterwards. So those are the kind of the three things I would recommend for most people starting out. What about you, Sue? I agree with everything Caroline said. One other thing that I would add is that um, uh, we all grow up within our within our own clinical specialties, and I think it's very important to find a mentor and a sponsor, someone who might actually be in another clinical specialty, or they might be an educator, not a physician, who has a has a broader view of what education is like and what questions there are that people are asking that you can become involved in. Uh, and that person can help you to uh, sort through different opportunities, but they can also sponsor you by uh, by knowing that you're interested in, in expanding your career and connecting you with other people and other opportunities. I think that's really important. Awesome. Those are all great tips for our listeners. In thinking about these tips and your careers, can you tell us a bit more about your clinician educator roadmap? We often hear people talk about a concept known as ikigai, a Japanese concept for a reason of being. So the intersection of one's passion, mission, profession, and vocation. Can you tell us a little bit more about your kind of intersection of mission, passion, vocation? Um, Caroline, why don't you get started? Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is a really interesting way to, to think about it. And I, I, it's funny because I learned about the concept of Ikigai, um, I think more re like recently. So I don't think I set out or, um, built it in the way to think about it, but I think it's such a brilliant way to, to do it. And I realize now kind of retroactively fitting it in, I'm like, oh, I guess I did <laughs> use the principles of, um, Ikigai. So it's kind of fun to, to, to look back, um, but I think uh, the way I think about it is, yeah, it's, um, you know, what you love, what you think is needed, what you're good at, and what you get paid for at the end of the day. So um, I think I realized that I, I really do love engaging with learners. I love clinical care. I just really love, um, I, I'm lucky where I see a lot of pediatric patients. And I just really love pediatric patients. So it's been really fun. Um, and I know that we, I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep specialist. Um, and so I was like, well, you we really need those. We just, we don't have, um, we, there's a shortage of pediatric subspecialties. Um, and so I'm also trying to engage learners and get them excited about my specialty. And then um, I feel like I'm pretty good at at least helping learners feel comfortable to just kind of explore and, um, and uh, you know, in, engage with patients. And I really try to put them um, forward to be the, the primary um, clinician for these patients. So I think, like I said, it's a more of a retroactive fitting where I realized like, oh, these are all these things that kind of um, came together um, on their own, which has really been kind of fun. Um, and I think as I think of the path, as I think of what I want to do next, I think I, I do keep thinking of, 
okay, well, what kind of comes naturally to me, which makes me feel energized. Um, and in also finding that what that institution needs, what maybe is needed nationally and trying to see if I can overlap that as much as I, as I possibly can. So I don't know if that, that answers your question, but that's how I think about it. Oh, that's great. You can feel your enthusiasm and your passion, you know, through the screen. Um, Sue, what about you in terms of your clinician educator roadmap? Well, I wish it had been so elegantly planned as what the concept implies, but I agree. I think you take opportunities that come to you and you um, reach out for opportunities that are in areas that you absolutely love uh, doing work. And uh, then you look back and you say, oh, wow, within that framework, I'm actually doing things that are uh, things that I love that I turned out to seem to add value to, and they fulfill my mission in terms of how I want to uh, be um, within uh, medical education. Uh, I do think that uh, the idea of connecting with learners uh, and seeing them have those aha moments where you offer them an opportunity to think differently about a concept or to help them to discover how it's important to them, uh, that is really gratifying to me. And so I think my path has sort of followed the path of what is it that I love doing uh, and finding a niche, as Caroline said earlier, uh, where what I love doing just happens to fall into uh, what was valuable and what was needed by the institution. And I love that, Caroline and Sue. I wonder with these kind of ways of you thinking about Ikigai, is there a roadmap or kind of a, a stepwise approach that you kind of um, took in your clinician educator careers? Or I know we'll get into a little bit kind of the, you know, early, middle and late career educator, but just wondering, is there an actual framework or a roadmap that you, you know, infuse the Ikigai into? Um, and maybe Sue, if you want to start first and then Caroline. I think um, one of the things that seems so easy when you look at the framework is it seems as though it's you're going to be able to find your space in that Venn diagram really easily. Uh, but in reality, if you really love teaching and you see it as your calling and you want that to be the way you spend your professional career, you may have to make some choices uh, because what you value about what you do may not necessarily always align with your institution, whether it's your department or, or your hospital or your entire system. And so you need to make a decision about how much you're willing to sacrifice what you see as your values and your mission as a budding educator uh, and make hard choices about where do you want to be? How much do you want to be paid? Are you willing to move? Uh, or are you willing to be patient and try to be a change maker uh, in the space where you're at? So even though the Venn diagram is elegant and beautiful, I wish that the roadmap to aspiring and achieving that were as easy as it seems by looking at it. I think there are a lot of uh, important and challenging choices along the way. Yeah, I, I think that's so beautifully stated, Sue, because um, you're right, you hope it would just be, oh, I love this, and the institution loves values that too, and boom, there's now a job for me, and I get this FTE, and it's all set. And um, you're right, it doesn't quite happen that way. But I, I do love this idea of kind of, um, I always 
teach about, you know, figuring out what your core values are and thinking about what's really important to you and then kind of deciding, yeah, exactly what, um, you know, is something that I need to have now, is something I'm willing to have later. And there's also this idea of also being of service to your institution and, well, they really need this. I think I wanted to do resident education, but there's this great opportunity in undergraduate medical student education that I can do now um, that would be really helpful. So you can kind of sometimes um, find a, a path that's a little bit different than what you um intend initially, but it might still lead you to something great. And reflecting back on both of your careers, and maybe we'll start with you, Sue, are there things that you wish you knew when you first got started as a clinician educator, like a, an event that was a big challenge, or maybe even a failure that you sort of wish you had looked at differently coming into it? Well, one thing I wish uh, that comes to mind immediately is having a mentor in writing. Mm. Uh, so I think, uh, although you might love the teaching that you're doing, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't have a broader impact unless you're able to write about it. And so I think having a mentor to teach me how to write better from the beginning would have been really helpful. I think another thing is, uh, that, uh, one person can find it very challenging to make change in a very large educational organization. And it's important to be able to share your vision and your message with like-minded educators and to build a coalition of people uh, so that you have a community with whom you can work uh, and also to pay attention to uh, the messages and the uh, reactions of others in order to shape your message uh, because you can't do it yourself. You need to be able to work within a community of educators in order to make change. So really working on the skills of uh, building a coalition, being humble, listening to others, and uh, helping to build consensus within your organization. Those are, um, I'm like so well stated. I'm trying to even think what to add to, to what Sue had, has to say. Um, I think um, the idea of uh, definitely having a mentor and even looking for sponsors, I think I, I I was lucky where I think I had that relatively early on. Um, but I think there are definitely times where I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't always maximize the opportunities I had. So I think um, realizing the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. So knowing that a sponsor might be someone that you have, um, you know, a finite relationship with and they can help, uh, you know, help uh, elevate you to different positions and things like that. And so realizing the difference and not every mentor can be your mentor for everything. So I love that Sue mentioned uh, a mentor for writing specifically. Because um, I think that's actually something that I too, um, someone told me later on, like, you know, write about everything you're doing. And I think I thought, well, I don't really care about publication. That's not really where I'm focused. But I realized just to Sue's point, the larger thing of it's not publishing just for the sake of publishing, but it, it's actually publishing to help have a wider audience to educate. So I, I think um, having that mindset earlier on, I think might've been um, more helpful. And then I think I could have just, like I said, write whatever I was already doing. So I think I always saw it as some extra thing that would just be, um, you know, so much more work. But I think if I just um, integrated it more into what I was already doing, it might've been a little easier. Yeah. And you, you both highlight, you know, challenges or things that you've learned and all these pearls throughout your career. If you were to give some advice to someone thinking about how to actually develop their different stages, say early, middle, late career, um, what advice would you give based on that information? I mean, I think many early um, clinician teachers who aspire to an education role are caught in the um, expectation to say yes to everything uh, because you're trying to prove your value. Uh, and so you're working hard at trying to 
uh, teach everywhere and be uh, you know at the bedside and providing great feedback. I think that it's important to start to recognize the areas in which you have the greatest um, impact and also the greatest love of what you're doing so that you know, within a few years, you should be um, finding people who can help support the new innovations that you're really interested in focusing on. Uh, because it's not possible to create a career path by going in 360 degrees simultaneously. You have to eventually find a path and strike out on that path. And so determining what it is that you love doing and what people value that you bring to the educational system or the experience um, should help you to start to focus so that you make a name for yourself and uh, that you uh, allow that as the place where you find your energy and you put all your work into. Couldn't agree more. It is so easy to just want to say yes to everything, especially a lot of us who are um, educators are collaborative by nature, right? We, we want to be helpful. We want to be involved in all the things. Um, and um, I think especially a lot of us in medicine are just hardworking, right? We just, we also like to, to be involved and, and, um, and do a good job. So I agree. I think there's a challenge of wanting to say yes to everything. I, I do think um, it's also that, that balance of, well, but I don't want to you know, just have this one small strip that I want to go down to. So it, I think that's where going back to that mentorship is really uh, important. Having someone that you can talk to, run your ideas by, bounce off ideas um, from and just kind of say, well, this opportunity came up or I got asked to do this. What? How does this, you know, align or, or make sense with, um, you know, previous conversations that we've had? So I think... Um, that's probably one of the most important things as a, an early early career person is just to kind of think about how do you start to find what you're good at, find what you love, what's interests you, and how to go down that path in a little bit more of a, a focused way. Um, and then I think as you get to you know more mid career, um, it's also you know what do you say no to, and what do you kind of have to trim down. I think um, I'm now um, I think in my personal path isn't, you know, I still want to say yes to everything because <laughs> everything seems like a great opportunity, but I think I'm also realizing there's still only 24 hours in a day. Um, you know, so I'm trying to, you know, realize, well, um, you know, sometimes I have to say no to things that are still great opportunities to say yes to things that are amazing opportunities. So it's really kind of starting to, um, to, to drill it down to what you really feel like you're good at and what you really enjoy. Um, so that's, that's, I feel like the, at least the, the two stages. I don't really know what to do in the, the senior stage yet. I'm still learning. Um, but that's, that's how I think about it. Um, can I just add one thing to Caroline's uh, comment? It is important once you determine your general area of focus, when you're saying no to things, is to become a sponsor to someone else mm -hmm. and to say, I don't have the bandwidth to do this myself but I would love for you to meet this other person that I'll introduce you to. Uh, I'm confident that they could take advantage of this opportunity and do a great job. And I'm happy to help them in doing it uh, because that's how you become a sponsor to someone else. Uh, and it, that also expands your community while also uh, reaching out to support other people who are aspiring to similar paths. I just want to just like like highlight that and just say yes. I think that is one of the best things that you can do. People did it to me. I now make a point to do it to other people, and I agree. So it's one of the the best things we can do to form a community. Welcome back to our discussion about launching a clinician educator career. Brief disclaimer. 
Unfortunately, Dr. Sue Farrell was not able to join us for this portion of the discussion, but we are so excited to have Dr. Caroline Bacori continue us on our journey as clinician educators. So let's start off with case number two from Cashlack Memorial. You were asked to speak to a group of general internists who have been practicing between five to 10 years after residency. They have varying levels of experience and involvement in teaching. Some do quote unquote on the job teaching in the clinical setting. Some are course or clerkship directors. And you are asked to speak to this group of clinician educators about enhancing their professional development. In faculty development, stages are often described as early, middle and late career. How would you advise those in this middle career phase? Um, I think this is a really interesting case because I think there's a lot of different ways to do this. And I, I would love to hear, of course, your your take on, on this. But um, I think when you have people who are in this kind of mid-range, and I know that there's a bit of that um, range, and honestly, a lot of people, even myself, I think when people kept calling me mid-career, I, I kept fighting that term because I thought I was still early. <laughs> so I'm still trying to get used to being um, in this middle career phase. But I think one of the, the biggest things is uh, really trying to, to hone in and start to narrow in on what it is that you really enjoy doing or what you love doing. So uh, if you, you know, in the beginning part, you're just kind of saying, you know, yes to just about everything. You want to try all these different things out, um, which is exciting, right? Because you're trying to find what your niche is and, and where you're really excited about. But I think as you start to get to more of a mid-career, you've kind of developed some skills. You've developed some um, expertise and um, a little bit of a maybe recognition in the area that you're really interested in. I think that's the time to start to kind of hone in on it and, and, and narrow in. You know, you really uh, thrive in bedside teaching of residents and fellows. Like this is a time to maybe really hone in on that. So maybe if you're doing procedures, you kind of maybe can start to develop um more uh, teaching in that specifically, or you can start to take more leadership roles, uh, ask for more leadership roles, look and see what's available. So you might um, be surprised um, how many different leadership roles are available at your institution. So I think this is a time to start stepping up and asking for these things and or applying for things. I think a lot of times when I would see things that would come available, I thought, well, I'm not ready for that yet. Um, but you might be surprised that actually you are. So I think it's a little bit of kind of honing in on what it is that you um, that you really find that you're good at or that you want to be good at, to be honest. You don't have to be an expert yet, but that you find that you are drawn to and it's okay to kind of narrow it. Caroline, that feels so real because I was on a panel for um, kind of new clinicians, clinician educators at UCSF, and someone introduced me as an esteemed mid-career uh, educator. And I was like, I'm sorry, hold up. I think you're talking to somebody else. No one is mid-career or esteemed here. And then they were like, no, mid-career is like, you know, years six to 10. And I was like, oh, Got it. Okay. I guess that makes sense. So it's like this moment when you realize you're in a different stage and it's kind of like the truth has looked you in the mirror and you have to decide like, I got to, I got to keep moving, you know, like I got to keep progressing. So I love that moment of realization. I wonder, do you ever think in terms of kind of correlating where you are in your stages of development relative to the clinician educator milestones that came out last year? Um, and how kind of those can frame a discussion for how people think about their development as a clinician educator or kind of participate in lifelong um, kind of quality or continuous improvement of their skills as clinician educators? I think 
Um, the, these ACGME clinician educator milestones still feel very new. And I think programs across the country in their faculty development are still grappling with how to use these milestones because it's not meant to be used in the sense of promotion or monetary reward, but it's meant for individuals to use it as a self-reflective tool for your own kind of self-reflective journey as a clinician educator. And so essentially there are, you know, five competency statements, one looking at lifelong learning, um, a second looking at administrative skills, third look at looking at diversity, equity, and inclusion in the learning environment, fourth looking at educational theory and practice like curriculum building, and then lastly thinking about psychological, emotional, and physical well-being of our learners. And you're able to assess yourself on, you know, from level one to level five, similar to the ACGME milestones I know you're familiar with in the fellowship program. Um, and just wondering if you've thought about this, heard about it, or heard about anyone trying to use it in faculty development practice. Thank you for, for that question. To be honest, I don't think I've really um, had a lot of discussions about this, but I imagine given that these are new and, and people are starting to think of how, especially improving the, the learning environment, I'm sure this is going to be part of the discussion more and more. And I think anyone who wants to be a, an educator, I think, should start to think about these. And I, I like that um, the goal of it is just to help people think of their teaching in multiple domains. Because I think sometimes we may think of it in just one way, like, oh, I really give good um, chalk talks or bedside teaching or PowerPoints. And like, but it's also thinking about like, how do you create an inclusive environment? How do you um, model? How do you promote well-being? I think it's actually really good to to think about this in this holistic way. And I'm and I'm hoping, like you said, that people you know look at it as a way to almost self-evaluate. Um, I think a lot of institutions have times when each educator, each faculty member, I should say gets to meet with their division chief, their chair, and just kind of reflect on their past year. So I think this might be an interesting uh, way for clinician educators to have um, talking points almost, or just something that they really want to work on. So um, I say all this as someone who hasn't really used these yet, but I, I um, you know, having looked at them uh, now, it does feel like it could be a really great tool um, for future for, for future use. Yeah, and I wonder if maybe um, the self-assessment tool could be used as a checklist that you use yearly with your division chief to talk about, this is what I need to progress to the next level. Because Caroline, you talk about creating a strategic plan, but for our listeners, what does that mean? How do you do this as a middle career um, clinician educator? Yeah, I think anytime you uh, want to move ahead in your career or advance, I think it is important to have a plan. And it's funny because a lot of us, when we go through uh, pre-med and med school and residency, the plan was kind of laid out for us, right? So uh, I always joke with people that I just kind of showed up every day and uh, kept advancing because, you, know, um, you know, I ended up doing a residency, a chief residency and two fellowships. And people are like, oh, my gosh, that's so much. How'd you do that? I'm like someone just suggested things. And I said, yes. Um, so it, it the plan was a little bit more clear when you're a trainee. But now when you're a faculty member, there are so many different paths. So I think having a little bit of um, strategy as you're approaching it is important. And so the way to, I think, 
one way to do it as a clinician educator is as you in the first couple of years is thinking about, well, what is it that I want to do? What do I where what area do I think I really want to um work in or, or advance in and just start there, I think. And that's a kind of a couple years of exploration. And then I think this is where those regular meetings with your mentor, with your division chief, where you can start to see, you know what, I'm really feeling like come alive here or here at the bedside, in the classroom, in the lab, whatever. And then you can start to say, okay, now that I think I know the area that I want to hone in on, think of, okay, well, I would love to advance and get promoted and, and do those things that we love to do in academics. Looking at the institutional requirements is actually really important and something that I think I took for granted. I had um, one of my mentors say, hey, have you looked at that website where it outlines all the things you need to do for promotion? I was like, no. (laughs) Should I? She's like, yes. So we kind of just, you know, even just getting a sense of, well, what are things that you that are usually expected or what helps people advance? And I think... um, Going over that or looking that with a mentor, someone who's more senior than you, is a really great way to start to, to map out your path. To be honest, everyone's path is going to look very different. So some people may um, really focus on curriculum development. Some people really may focus on um, learning environment. Um, others, you know, recruitment, diversity um, and inclusion. I mean, there's so many different paths to do it. But I think it's really just kind of sitting down and thinking strategically about what you want to do. I know sometimes it sounds cheesy to say the five-year plan, the 10-year plan. Every time people ask me that, I, I, I stress because I have no idea what my 10-year plan is. I still don't know what my Same. 10-year plan is. Yeah. But I think I know what my two-year plan is. You know, I have an idea of like maybe what I want to do in three years. So I think just thinking uh, in those aspects would be good. And another, um, uh, you know, I, I really love um, reading. I've been reading books I've been trying to get back into to reading, but there's certain even books that I've been reading that actually been helping me gain more clarity in what I want to do. Um, there's a book, Essentialism, uh, by Greg McEwen, that has been really helpful to, you know, just help me kind of hone in um, what is really important to me or essential to me, to use the title. Um, and so Wait, I Caroline, think- can we pause on that? Because I love that because <clears throat> I don't know if you read it, read it or listened to an audio book, but those oh, of yeah. us who are like very slow, um, listen to it on audio. And I, he kept being like a non-essentialist would do this. And I was like, uh, I do that every day. And then he'd be like, a non-essentialist would schedule their day in 12 minute increments. And I was like, gotcha. Like that is me. And so literally it became a running joke and like my division about like how many of the non-essential things era would be doing and it was almost always like 90 to 100 percent so i would love to hear just on that book note maybe like how you caroline like pulled out strategies of essentialism or maybe how you're um employing the strategies of essentialism because i still find it very difficult to not be a classic non-essentialist to be fair, I also, I mean, what you just said, you're at like, yes, that was me. I, every time he said about non-essential, I mean, even how I get a, get uh, ready in the morning, I'm always yes. like one more load of laundry and let me just put these dishes in and let me just do this one email. And I feel like I'm always trying to add, add, add. Um, so I, I feel your pain there. And I, I think there's something, uh, those of us who go into medicine, I don't know if it's, it's, if it's a learned or a little bit of our, our nature <laughs> to want to do all the things. Um, but I, I think, the way I see the book, um, or at least the way the book helped me, was just trying to center really what's important. And the line that just that struck me, and I, I still is this idea of, um, you know, either it's a it's a heck yes or no, right? It was just kind of like you have to be super excited about something, or you're just not going to do it. And that sometimes you have to give up 
really great things to do amazing things. And just that kind of idea of like, okay, if I don't do all the things, yes, this is a great opportunity, but I have this other, you know, thing that a concept that I'm really looking forward to. And so I, I maybe have to say no to things that I are still pretty cool. So um, that, that's been something that it kind of runs through the back of my brain. <laughs> Every yeah. time I say, say, think of other opportunities, uh, but to be honest, I think it's actually concepts that I have to keep reminding myself of probably every I'd like to say every six months, but maybe every quarter I need to actually sit back and, and look at what I'm doing, look at my calendar, look at my week and think of how I'm spending my time. I love that, Caroline. And I do want to hear what other books were on your list before I interrupted you. But I do feel like that comment about heck yes really kind of amplifies your um, recommendation around thinking about what is this, th- what am I doing right now? And am I loving it in this stage of my clinician educator career? Or, you know, am I thinking about my next two, five, 10 years? And maybe there's a, a heck yes opportunity that I'm really aiming for trying to get to. Um, so I really love how you kind of tied those, those things together. But please continue with the books that you were um, talking about. Well, now I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm like, let me, uh, the other books that I have, uh, one is Atomic Habits, uh, which I know is one that people bring up all, a lot. And sure, it's not um, as specific to medicine. We're not really talking about habits here. But I think in terms of moving towards trying to be more essentialist and less non-essentialist, I think I, it, I've learned it's about systems where they say what you fall when you get really busy and really stressed out. I think this idea that you fall to what your habits are, I think just really resonates. It's true. When I'm on call, I know what I'm going to fall to. I'm going to go to Trader Joe's and grab some French fries or something. You know, I'm going to do the same things because those are my comforts, right? That's, oh, I'm stressed. Let me do what's comfortable. What's my habit? So I think um, I, I like that book because it just teaches you a little bit more of how you can create new habits and how you can change because it may feel a little uh, daunting because I think someone might hear this and go, this is all pie in the sky and you want me to completely change who I am. And uh, it's not about that. It's really just trying to figure out how do you kind of center what's really important to you? And now that you're getting to be in your mid-career, you're really thinking about what your path, how it's going to go, and you actually have agency over your path. How do you even start to, to do that? Because I don't think in med school, we really get, a, we don't get a lot of training as how to really forge our own path. And so I think this is an exciting time for a lot of faculty, but it's also a bit of a scary time. Uh, and this is where having friends, peers, um, even some people not in medicine, they can bounce ideas off of and can kind of reflect back your how you're feeling. And then having really good, um, you know, senior people who've been here before can kind of give you advice. And you may have to get advice from multiple people. So sometimes, you know, maybe you talk to one person and they give you advice that maybe it's not as helpful, but you can maybe uh, talk to a few different people and get their perspective. And like reflecting on these two books that sound amazing that I must read after we're done recording, how do you think about the heck yes and forging your own path in your own career? Where do you feel you are and where do you feel you're going, Caroline? Wow, what a great question. Um, I, I think I'm actually at the point where I need to do this stop, sit down and rethink everything. So I'm actually at the the path in my career where I realize I've been kind of going, going, going. And it's like that quarterly or every six months, like, okay, let me take a pause, see what I'm doing. And and so I think the ideas that I'm really playing with that I enjoy is I, I've been wanting to do more with my um, fellow education. So fellowship education, I should say. So 
really, um, I mean, I'm a peds pulmonologist, so um, there are just not as many people who go into peds pulmonary. And I kind of want to explore, well, why is that? And then really kind of nurture those who do and how do I help uh, encourage them to, to find the careers that they want. So that's something that I've been really interested in exploring more. I've been wanting to also help trainees uh, rediscover the joy in clini- clinical work. I know um, burnout's been hard and I know we've had a lot in the pandemic and there's been so much going on and um, our system still needs to be, you know, reworked and, and made better, especially for people in healthcare. But I, I love when I'm in the room one-on-one with a, a patient, a family. I had a four-year-old the other day who kept wanting to play tag in the middle of, you know, our clinic visit. It's just like, I'm in pediatrics, right? So I, I just love that. And so it's kind of um, one thing to help trainees figure out how to find the joy back in their clinical work. Or if it's not the clinical work, maybe it's their research or just help them find the joy in, in their job in some way. Um, and the other thing I really want to start to to hone in on and, um, and explore is how to also educate and empower parents more to just kind of take back control of, um, you know, their child's healthcare again, being in, in pediatrics is just how to help uh, parents know what to ask, how to ask, how to optimize the time during their visits. Um, how, um, sleep medicine is something I'm really passionate about. So how do I actually uh, encourage people to really prioritize their sleep? Because, it, you know, good sleep really affects all aspects of your health. So uh, those are kind of the four areas that I think I've gotten most excited about. And I'm trying to think of, well, what am I doing? How am I spending my time? And what of the things I'm doing are actually going towards any of these passions right now? And so things that are great, let me then support those. And if there's things I'm doing that I'm like, well, it's not really supporting that. And I don't really have to do that. Let me maybe, maybe it's time to kind of sponsor someone else to do that. So that's, that's the stage that I'm in right now. I love that. It sounds like you have a very comprehensive strategic plan for yourself that you've built with your mentors, your sponsors, your coalition. If you were like thinking back to when you were an early clinician educator, are there things like you wish you knew then that you feel like you know now, you know, pearls that you would you know, be giving yourself when you're at that point? Because I imagine your strategic plan has changed over time which is exciting. Um, But kind of what have you learned along the way that you'd like to pass along? I think as I thought of my strategic plan early on, I think I realized I I wish I had realized that it would change. (laughs) I think I, you know, I think a lot of us feel like, well, I'm making this decision and this is going to be the decision for the next 30 years. So I think maybe realizing it's going to change and now it's okay. Um, I think now I'm completely fine with things changing, but that would have been one thing I would have um, wish I'd been more comfortable with. Um, I think also asking a lot of peers what they're doing. I think talking to more people about what their plans were. I think I was, I think I was a little bit nervous about asking people because it feels a little <laughs> intrusive to be like, Francis, what's your strategic plan for your next three years? You know, and, and I think maybe not asking that way, but just getting a sense of what people are, are doing and getting inspired by other people and what they're what they're planning on. I think that was something I wish I had done more um, and just kind of, you know, basically lifted my head up from the busyness of, of my clinical work, which I do love. But I think sometimes it's very easy to just kind of get put your head down and, and work, work, work. But I, I think I wish I stuck my head up a little bit more and and just asked around and just saw what other people were doing. 
And Caroline, on that topic, because I think sometimes the other thing that's really hard to ask about, separate from like, what's your strategic plan? I think the other thing that's hard to talk about is like promotion, advancement, kind of where people are in their career. Um, you could probably throw in salary in that kind of, you know, hard to talk about topics. But um, I wonder when you were kind of going through some of these stages, how did you approach the concepts of promotion and advancement and kind of think about as a clinician educator, how do I get into that? How am I thinking about the next stage when it comes to kind of, you know, assistant, associate, full, kind of those type of, um, you know, more academic uh, advancement levels? So I was lucky where I think I have to give it up to my my mentors and sponsors because they're the ones who brought it up. I don't think I was even aware. Again, my head was down. I was just working, working, working. I was a worker bee. So um, I think it was really great to have um, someone more senior than me just bring it up. And I, I remember thinking like, what? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's too early. I can't even think about that. I don't know. What is that? 20 years from now I get promoted. Is that how it works? Um, but I think they're like, well, no, like in the, then going back to, again, your institution requirements or guidelines for how you get promoted. I think having someone just kind of bring it up, I think was really great. Um, my institution also does have um, a lot of workshops and webinars designed for early uh, career clinicians, uh, clinician educators of how to kind of start to approach it. So I think taking advantage of those things, even if you feel like you're way too early, even if it's you're six months in, you haven't even thought about it, just having it in the back of your head, I think is really helpful. Um, and then also looking at even society, professional organizations, such a, you know, bigger organizations that are specific to your specialty, they may also have um, kind of career development um things. So to be honest, like I can't say, oh, I just knew and I thought about it. Nope. Um, people guided me and, and and told me, hey, these are things that you should start to, to think about. And then I think also realizing, getting out of that training mode and realize I, you are becoming expert in something and feeling comfortable with that, then it just becomes easy to look for the easier, I should say, to look at those things. So I think at first, a lot of us feel this, I'm not ready, me, like it's you, who, eminent who, what? But you realize like, oh, it's, I'm making it too big a deal. This is just about moving in the next step and progressing in my career. And this is going to help me get where I need to go. So I was very lucky that other people were able to speak truth to me and uh, guide me even when I would try to, to push back. And there's something really beautiful, Caroline, about saying like, you know what, you just started and you are thinking about your future. Like we are future oriented people. I feel like that reminds me of like, you know, when we write in our patient notes, like this person is future oriented. I'm not as worried about them, but like we could also embody some of that, right? Like saying, I'm going to, yes, I'm six months in, but I'm also thinking about what my kind of five to 10 year plan and five to 10 year kind of journey in academics looks like. And I am going to go to this meeting or this workshop about advancement and just like learn the ropes so that, um, just in case, God forbid, there's a situation where those amazing mentors or sponsors that you had, Caroline, aren't there for that person, then they can kind of also prepare themselves, um, you know, personally about how to navigate that world. I, I, it's so true. I, I, it's almost the idea that um, it's okay to do things scared or uncertain, right? Mm. So I think um, I think in the entrepreneurship world or in the business world, I think the big thing is like just jump in, right, before you're fully ready. And I think um, in medicine, right, that's a little bit you know, yes and no, we kind of do that, right? But we do it with like a nice big safety net right beneath us <laughs> that we can see, right? When we're doing procedures or talking to patients for the first time or things like that. But um, I think 
you know, jumping in and understanding a little bit more of like, well, you know, someone's inviting me to do a grand rounds. Should I do that? I'm not ready. You know, but I think, well, someone's inviting you. Give it a try. See what happens. Right. I mean, you know, of course, prepare for it. But I think jumping into opportunities that you may not even realize that you're ready for that you might be scared about. I think there's actually benefit in that. Um, And then because realizing, well, this is how just to your point of being future oriented. Well, everyone started this way. There had to be first. (laughs) So I think uh, I do like the idea of, um, yeah, realizing like, well, I will be, I will be expert in one day. I will be senior in one day. So I think it's just uh, keep moving forward and progression. I mean, you know, we think of like the pillars of health and well-being. And one of them I think is, progress, right? And and moving forward. So uh, I think I encourage anyone listening to this who maybe they don't quite have a mentor, they're not really sure, they feel kind of like they're spinning a little bit um, to maybe just try something that feels a little scary, that seems also kind of exciting and just going for it. Um, if you don't have a mentor, I even think of like reaching out to someone who you think might be a great mentor and just send them a cold email, <laughs> You know, a, a quick 15 minute or a, a, an email where you just ask for like a quick 15 minute time just to hear about their career. Right. You don't have to say, please be my life mentor. That might be intimidating to send an email <laughs> that says that. But just, hey, I really have admired your career. Would love to to take 15 minutes to, to hear more about it. And, you know, one of the, the things that is kind of nice is that we have different modalities to do that. Now we have Zoom, we have phone calls, you know. Of other ways where you can have more of a personal connection. So that would be my my recommendation to anyone who feels like they like I don't have anyone to even talk to. Just reach out and find someone. I love that using the power of Twitter or other social media to create your own coalition of supporters. In kind of thinking about the promotion process, I've noticed that a lot of Um, young female educators that I mentor and coach often are quite hesitant in going for these positions. And sometimes it seems like they are more hesitant, even though they have the qualifications to do so. How do you think about like bias and equity in this promotion process? Us all being women in medicine here on this podcast and thinking about how we can uplift others and uplift their voices. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's like a whole other, (laughs) it's a whole other discussion, isn't it? Um, yes. I mean, I think studies have shown whether, and to people who might be listening thinking like, oh, there's no bias. It doesn't exist. I mean, studies have shown that it does. So I think we at least have evidence that, that it is there. Um, and I think, uh, we have evidence for even for, you know, being a woman, being a, a person of color, for being even a shy person, a quieter person. There's, um, all sorts of um, bias that can affect your career. Um, and so I think being aware of it is important. Uh, you know, what are things to mitigate? I'm sure there's lots of different ways that one can try to, to mitigate it. But I, I think this is where um, forming community, I think, is really, really important. So, uh, you know, ideally, like, for instance, like, you know, us all being women, it's like even having other, talking to other women, maybe who are you know, mid or late career and asking that or or senior career and just asking them like, hey, how did you get to where you are? What advice do you have for me? Or maybe just form, uh, I know a lot of different institutions have uh, women in fill in the blank, right? So, or, you know, just different community groups that um, people can come together and just kind of share ideas. I think that's really important, um, however you identify. Um, And that isn't to say that your mentors or sponsors can't be of a different group than you, obviously, they can still still be. Um, so I think um, 
I think one of the things is just, I think being aware of it is probably really important. Forming community and asking and just um, talking to other people and kind of getting ideas of how they might, you know, overcome it too. But uh, I think there's probably not one way that people can overcome or mitigate bias where they are. And it's probably going to be very individual how you do it. But yeah, I think it's, I think it's at least doable. We're not, we're not perfect yet, but I think it seems like things are getting a little bit better. Caroline, I love that. I feel like I'm still shook from your comment about doing something that feels scary because I'm like, what? What is that? Tell me more about that. And when you're like, don't feel so qualified or you don't feel ready and just realizing that there are many people out there who are doing that all the time. And yet this is like very um, new to other people, you know, especially in medicine. I, while I was reflecting on that, I was also thinking about sometimes the, some of the scary things to me or to maybe other uh, clinician educators, I'm curious to hear if that's been the case for you, is figuring out how we integrate kind of scholarship or like saying that, you know, we are doing this, let's say we can even use the podcast world as an example, like we were doing this podcast and now we have to write about it or like now we have to do something else about it and kind of how do we factor in scholarship in our uh, conversation of moving forward uh, in the clinician educator world? Um, like how do you think about that? How do you be, how do you kind of highlight all the incredible work that you're doing as a pediatric pulmonologist, maybe from a scholarship side and then find time to like be an essentialist, you know? Um, I would love your tips on that. Well, so I, I will admit this is something that I also struggle with is, um, you know, publishing and writing and prioritizing that. Because I think in my mind, I thought, oh, that's not that important to me. I just want to do the work and meet people and talk with people. And that's, you know, what I love to do. And then I think what helped me was that someone kind of um, reframed scholarship for me. So kind of you what you what you said, Ira, which is, it's not just about, oh, just writing to write, right? It's not that, oh, let me just write so I could say I wrote a paper. But it's also like, I discovered this really great thing, or I found a way to do this, this one, uh, you know, this curriculum design, or I found a way to teach, or um, here's a way to promote uh, an inclusive environment at my institution, or what have you. And you're like, I want to share it with other people. I want other people to know about it. So I think the reframing as uh, just thinking like, well, why do you even publish? It is to share ideas and progress your ideas. So even if you're like, well, I tried this, but it wasn't quite, this was a pilot, you, someone else might take that, run with it, and then build off of it. And just thinking of all the literature that you've read, that you've done, where like, gosh, I wonder if anyone's ever tried this before. And you go to the literature to look for it, right? So it's like someone else took that time to help you in your journey too. So for me, reframing it was was key because if someone's like, oh, you should publish because you should publish, it just it wasn't enough for me initially. But this idea of sharing knowledge was was really um, attractive to me, and I guess that makes sense being an educator. <laughs> uh, that that was exciting. Um, and then, so I think. I'm still working on this, right? So, um, and to your point about being an essentialist, essentialist, I'm trying to find, you know, what, how do I want to spend my time? And so I think what's helped me to do the papers I have done is, I think, um, if it's a topic I really enjoy, um, if it's something I myself want to also dive into a little bit more, <laughs> that's also been kind of helpful. Like, oh, I do want to learn more about that. Um, or it's a research project that I, you know, really enjoyed, I was proud of, or I feel like could help other people. 
Um, and then the other thing you mentioned is like things that you're already doing um, and just letting people know about them. So I, I think uh, trying to pick the things that really seem to be the most bang for the buck for other people, not just for me, I think has been what has motivated me to, to write things. And then I have to keep coming back to the idea of community and having other people that I do this, do this work with. And they're the ones who actually also help motivate me to get it done. So there's, um, you know, definitely papers where people have been like, well, we should write this up. And I'm like, <laughs> and they're like, come on, let's do it. We'll do it together. You do the first draft, I'll do the next. And, you know, and then I'm like, okay. And then having this like, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, era's counting on me. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me work on it and get it done. So that, that's also helped too. So it's, it's really having, changing that framework, um, doing things that like mean a lot to you and then working with people that you respect and, and enjoy working with. Thanks, Caroline. I'm yeah. looking straight at Molly. She doesn't know it, but I'm looking right at her. Accountability, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I also wonder, Caroline, in kind of your like thinking around scholarship, if there's also a form of advocacy in writing because you're building that community and you're advocating for things that you're really passionate about, that you're like, heck yeah, this like topic in pediatric pulmonology like needs more attention. Um, and so I think it's wonderful that you're adding your voice to that as well. I, I love adding that advocacy piece. That's such a great way because I think a lot of um, a lot of us go into medicine because we want to help our patients, but also the greater the greater good or the greater community. So I love thinking about it as a, a path for advocacy as well. That's great. Caroline, I'm just ready to like pump you up when you're like, and then we did this project with patients and their families and their or the parents of the patients getting kind of sleep studies, if I'm remembering correctly, and kind of that um, you are looking into for the future. And we can be your accountability team. We can be like your like cheerleaders. You can do it. You're pumped about this. It's it's happening. I love it. No, thank you. I, I can use accountability partners is always a good thing. So please jump on board. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, Caroline, any kind of main take homes from the incredible pearls that you and Ensu have been dropping for us about it, clinician educator careers? We did speak about so many great things. And I know uh, Sue also dropped so many wonderful pearls that I'm always learning from from her as well. Um, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a gestalt person. You know, I think you've learned that, uh, what is it, in sign out that you actually learn uh, people's personality types. If they're people who like dive into all the details versus people who like the big picture. So I'm a, I am like to, to step back. But um, if people could only take away a couple things from this whole discussion. Well, first off, that if you want to be a clinician educator, you are you are so wonderful for wanting to do that. It's a, it's a worthy uh, career choice. And I think um, thankfully, in academics, I think people are recognizing it to be something that's really important. And I think we're seeing a lot of different structures put in place to support you in that career. So I think that's probably really important to know. Um, and the other thing is that there is uh, a path for progression and advancement in, within that the career field. And it's not something that you have to do alone or forge uh, a path all by yourself, but getting peers getting mentors, whether at your institution or you're cold emailing someone <laughs> um, that you haven't met before, but that you admire, I think getting support is probably really, really uh, important and helpful. And then I think as you move through the stages, when you start early, you're still doing everything, trying to figure out what's what I'm passionate about. And as you move through, you can start to be more essentialist, I guess, with it, uh, where you, um, you know, start to, to 
say no to things that maybe aren't quite um, on along your path, uh, and that's a beautiful thing. And then knowing that your path might change, and that's that's also a good thing. One of the experiences I'm really grateful for that I had was when I was a fellow, um, I was able to participate in the Harvard Macy Institute uh, postgraduate medical educators uh, program. That's actually where I met Francis and Sue. Uh, and it's just one example of a program, one of the many programs that Harvard Macy offers um, that helps uh, develop this community of educators and people who really want to help advance medical education and be leaders in it and think innovatively. And the great part is, is like you can have this one that's for fellows and trainees. They also have many for faculty, for early faculty, for very senior faculty. Um, So I think that's just an example of a really great uh, organization that is just designed to do all the things that we just talked about today. And um, I think uh, the people I've met uh, at these uh, I go back every year as one of the faculty to try to help and train uh, new trainees that come through it and new scholars that come through it. And it's just one of the, my most favorite things to do every year um, because it just kind of expands that community. It's actually held on the East Coast and I live on the West Coast. So I <laughs> uh, go from California to Boston in December uh, and I uh, have a great time. So I just, um, I feel like I would only do that if I felt like you know, the time that I I spend there is valuable. So I think thinking of a program like Harvard Macy Institute or, you know, something similar, if it's closer wherever your listeners are are, um, listening to, it'd be great. Something to really consider. Shout out to California. Love it. (laughs) Well, Francis, that was an amazing conversation. And Molly, I'm so excited to hear what your take-homes are. I think for me, um, something that Sue mentioned is kind of the power of the coalition, the community of educators, and having someone there who is both a mentor, a sponsor, and also this really nice comment around having a writing coach or like a writing person who teaches you how to write because, you know, uh, truthfully, I'm pretty sure I still don't know how to write. And so it would be really nice to kind of think about being intentional about finding someone like that. Francis, do you have a take home point? Yeah, I love what you mentioned, Ira. I think I was also reflecting on how both our speakers today really talked about what they're really passionate about in medical education, but not only what they're really passionate and excited about, but the needs within the institution and how they really fit their passion within the opportunities that were presented to them. And so I think that's a really interesting way in you know, strategizing in your own clinician educator career. What about you, Molly? They were both just very dynamic and, and very thoughtful speakers. Um, one thing that really struck me was, uh, you know, in doing this podcast, I've been thinking a lot about medical education, but in my heart, I am still a clinician and my primary care patients, my primary care panel is is one of the things that I really love about my job. And I really appreciated that Sue brought it back to that and saying, you know, in order to be good clinician educators, we need to be at our hearts clinicians. And so I, I love that she brought it back to that. This has been another episode of our Curbsiders mini-series, The Curbsiders Teach. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash teach. A special thanks to Dr. Matt Lotto and Dr. Paul Williams and their support for this project. Thanks to Dr. Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music and to the team at Podpace for editing our audio. Thanks to our social media team, Andrew Dillat on Instagram and John Ung on Twitter. I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. All you have to do is create an account. I've been Dr. Francis Yu. 
And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsidersteach at gmail.com. I'm Dr. Ira Krasinovskaya. Thank you for joining us today and letting us bring you a little nugget of medical edutainment. 